Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. First, before we get started, I have to say that today is the very first episode of the second chapter podcast, and I'm so excited, a little nervous, but mostly excited. I hope that you really enjoy it. Please subscribe, give us some great reviews, tell your friends, all the rest. Today, I am speaking with Julie Binish, a former sex therapist who finally got to pursue her acting dreams at the age of 47. Now coming up to her big 6-0, Julie shares with us a little bit about the ups and downs and what finally got her onto the stage. And telling a story like that, that is so important, so relevant to so many people's lives. Doing that, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining us on the second Hi. chapter. It's nice to talk to you. Nice to see your face. How are nice you? Nice to see you too. Yes, I'm fine. Thank you. Can you? Yeah, yeah. Really good. Thanks. Good. We had some technical difficulties before we got started. Mm, so now we're I saying, did. yeah, we're fine because we're talking and <laughs> yay. So as I said in the intro, you were sex therapist turned actor post 35, mm-hmm. But let's start at the beginning, because I think you have had a couple changes in your life. So you started with this dream of acting that maybe wasn't fully supported by your family. So mm-hmm. you kind of took a different route. Where did you start? So I um, I didn't go to university when I left school. I actually went and did a secretarial course, a bilingual secretarial course. And I worked for about a year as a secretary, found it deeply unfulfilling. I have to interrupt already and ask a question, yeah, yeah. but did you find, because you said that your family wasn't very supportive of the whole acting thing, but mm. did you find that you were getting a little bit of that, like, be a secretary or be a teacher or was it somewhat gender? Yeah, I, I would say that my family, so first of all, nobody before me in my family, nobody had been to university. So it was, they didn't quite get the usefulness or the point of university and I wanted if I'd have gone to uni you know I wanted to do English or you know something like that and they were what's the point of that what are you going to do with that so I didn't have enough gumption or I hadn't got my I hadn't got myself sorted out Mm -hmm. unsurprisingly at 18 to be able to sort of push for that or say no this is what I want and and so I went I sort of went with the flow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, all right, I'll, I'll do that then. And um, yeah, that really did nothing for me at all. <laughs> and then I, actually, my sister was a nurse. And um, quite unimaginatively, I think I then thought, well, I think I'll do that. I went into nursing. It is interesting because it does seem like, I don't know, you know, people ask us to make these kind of career decisions at 17 or 16 mm. or 15 or 18 or whatever that is. And Yeah, it's hard to be imaginative when you don't really know what's out there in the world yet. And I think it really depends on your family as well. You know, if you come from a family who, you know, it's outside their sphere of of knowledge, you know, they don't, you know, my parents didn't know anything about theatre or acting or, and I can remember when I was about 15, I had a really good friend who was this, he was a teenage entrepreneur. He was amazing. And he was the one, he really encouraged me. And I remember him sending off for and getting this RADA booklet for me, like application booklet. And he said, you should do this. And I took it home and I, you know, I showed it to them and they laughed. I mean, it sounds really sad, like <laughs> poor me, but, and they just laughed at me. My family, they just really, they just laughed at me. It's like, well, 
Don't be ridiculous. No, but I get it because there is this kind of thing. And I think partly it's, you know, understanding, but partially your parents kind of looking out for you as well. Because Mm -hmm. I know in my family, there was a lot of like, but why would you do that? Don't you want to get a real job? Mm. So I think that happens to a lot of people, especially with something Mm. like an acting dream. So you studied as a nurse. You ended up doing some nursing. And then? And then this goal and this sort of hope of going back and actually going to uni, it was still there, that sort of urge to to go and study something that I really wanted to study. So I was, I was 26, I think. So I went back as a mature student and I went to Goldsmiths and I did English and drama. So, it sounds funny though to say mature student at 26 because that I know. sounds like such a, you know, a young, yeah. you know, what am I doing with my life kind of age. Goldsmiths was cut short. How far into Goldsmiths were you? I did um, two years and a bit. I got ill towards the end of my second year with ME. And and I'm assuming, you know, something like acting, that made it quite difficult. Oh, impossible. Absolutely impossible. And it was awful. It was going really well. The degree was going really well. The acting element in it was going really well. And I was just loving it. It all stopped. So when you, was it something that was easy to diagnose or was it something that you kind of just felt really badly for a long time and couldn't figure out? No, it was a nightmare to diagnose. So this was a long time ago and people didn't really know what it was. Yeah. They didn't know what ME was. And I sort of saw so many different doctors trying to work out what was wrong with me. Just in case anybody's listening that still doesn't know what ME is, can you... Um, ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. It's called different things in different countries. I think they call it Epstein-Barr in America, don't they? Um, I think it comes under that heading. I was going to say, now I'm, now I feel confused because I've been here for a long time and I'm just yeah. like, I've heard... Because You're not American at all I'm, anymore. Well, except for You're my, British. In my, in my accent. <laughs> And I just gradually got iller and iller, awful fatigue, aches and pains all over, lots of weird neurological symptoms. I mean, the problem is everybody that gets it gets it differently. Right. And so it's really hard to diagnose. But I went from being a perfectly healthy person who was just loving my life to being unable to function at all, really. So they finally did come up with a diagnosis. Was was that... I mean, that must have been a huge relief. Again, I'm kind of turning it back to gender, and I don't mean to do that. But especially as a woman, I feel like a lot of times it's in your head or... And I think we're getting better about that. But especially, like you say, it was Mm. a while back, so... It was great to get a diagnosis because the diagnosis wasn't a terminal illness. So initially, when you get a diagnosis like that, it rules out, you know, I'd been tested for MS, I'd been tested for all other really frightening illnesses. So it was a relief to find out I didn't have those. But I think the problem is, because it was so unknown, you know, you don't know what you're dealing with, you don't know how long it's going to last, you don't know what to do to try and make yourself better. I joined, you know, I joined all the self-help groups, I used to go along to the, um, the ME Association groups. I remember the first time I went, and, um, I took a packet of biscuits with me, right? Right. And I put these biscuits down on the table. And the way everybody looked at me, it was like I had put heroin on the table. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, you're still eating sugar, are you? Because I hadn't made that connection yet at that point that actually foods could potentially make you feel worse. 
And actually, there was then a link between ME and candida, systemic candida. And if you eat sugar, that's the worst thing you can do. But I was still, so it's a I was still eating the biscuits. biscuits. <laughs> that's what you do in a self-help group. <laughs> so even though it wasn't a terminal diagnosis, it kind of at the moment was a terminal diagnosis for your acting yeah. studies. Yeah. I then got pregnant while I had ME. So, so I, ha- I was already ill before I got pregnant. And then does that make ME, does, does one, you know, affect the other in the sense that, you know, it's already hard enough to have ME, it's already hard enough to be pregnant? <laughs> it, it's not great because, you know, if you think of all the stuff that goes along with pregnancy, I actually helped to set up an organization called the ME and Pregnancy Advisory Service or something. And, and it was, it turned into this really mega thing, which was way too complicated for ill people to, to manage. It's like we all wanted to do something useful. And then, and actually, that then got handed over to the ME Association, fortunately. And then they then took that on. But it happens at a time for women often where that's they're at that life stage and they might be thinking about having children. And and I I realized we realized how many people there were out there who are in exactly that situation uh, with no information available whatsoever. Amazing. So, this isn't even what I wanted to talk to you about, but fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so, you stepped away from the English and drama, had uh, two girls. So, my, uh, one son, my son is 29, okay. and my girls, twin girls, are 27. And so, obviously, between the Emmy, the family coming along, acting was definitely on hold. Yeah. So, what happened yeah, next? Everything was on hold, really, apart from getting through the days. I bet, especially with twins. Sometimes when I was so tired, I just used to lie on the floor and um, like turn myself into a baby gym and they'd just crawl over me. And they thought it was hilarious. It was like, oh, like mommy's, this is all I mommy's And that was all I could do. I used to really, really worry that they'd remember that I was ill and it would really affect them and that my sort of really terrible energy levels would affect them. But it didn't. At this point... You decide to do something else, but it's not acting yet. What what happens? Yeah. So quite a lot of stuff went on in my life with my parents at the time. And I won't go into detail about that. But it did make me think an awful lot about counselling. And I became interested in that idea. And I started my counselling training, really, which came out of experiences that had sort of happened in the family. And I started my counselling training. I was getting better. I was feeling well enough to sort of do something small. Um, So I started doing a part-time counselling course and and that was it really. It just sort of grabbed me and I kept going. That doesn't feel small though. I mean, that definitely, you say something small, but I feel like that could be a huge, major decision for so many people. So on top of, yes, I'm starting to feel better. I still have, how Mm -hmm. how old are your kids at this point? Still Um, three Four. So still quite young family. And, but yet you're doing this part time. So it led to more relationship counseling. You know, I started off small. I qualified as an individual counselor. Then I added on relationship counseling. I was with Relate for years. I worked for Relate Mm -hmm. for years. Then I became, I did my um, psychosexual therapy diploma. And then I trained as a trainer as well. So the way the training with Relate worked in those days was you did your couple training. If you wanted to talk about sex in any detail with your clients, 
you had to hand them over. You, you, it was almost like, well, your job ended there and then you hand them over to the sex therapist. And I used to find that really frustrating. So, so I was like, well, why can't... And sex aren't related in this world. I mean, they were, <laughs> but if they needed, and again, this is quite a few years ago, if they needed more specific work with a sexual focus, you, you then referred them on. So is that and kind of how you ended up there? Because you said, I I could handle this too. I want to yeah, be the person. I want to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do it all. And I was, I was really interested in that way of working as well. It was quite a different way of working. I mean, I feel like and even now there is a certain stigma about the idea of going to a sex therapist. Mm. I can imagine um, back then, was it something that, I mean, I don't want to say back in the old days, because that's what in it sounds like I'm days. saying. But, you know, <laughs> a, a, few, a few years ago, yeah. was that something that really did have a lot of stigma behind it? I don't know about stigma. I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to do for people to go and seek help with something that's so intimate. Right. I always really, I really admired my clients who would come and be brave enough to, to sort of pick up the phone and take that step because often it, you know, what, what would often happen would be it had been going on for a really long time because right. if you think about it, you know, how difficult it is to have these conversations in a relationship. Something goes wrong. All right, maybe there's something. Okay, say it's erectile dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And the partner, you know, we didn't just see heterosexual couples. We saw gay couples as well. But I'm just using this as an example. Say the husband um, starts to have, a, has an episode of erectile dysfunction, feels awful about it, feels mm -hmm. embarrassed, doesn't really want to talk about it starts to get anxious, that anxiety clearly makes it much more likely that it will happen again. Right, yeah. And what happens over time, it's the, it's the difficulty in talking about it that make, then makes it more likely to carry on happening. And so often people will be quite far down the line where they've had a problem for quite a while, haven't talked about it, and that in itself has become more of a problem in a way, the fact that they can't yeah. communicate about it. I mean, sometimes it could be something like my knee is sore and you keep going yeah. day after day. Oh, my knee's sore. And you're not yeah. embarrassed exactly that your knee's sore, but you're kind of like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. If mm -hmm. it's something that on top of, you know, trying to brush it under the rug for that reason, you kind of say, this is something I don't really want to talk about it. I can imagine that that just keeps compounding the problem till nobody wants to talk about it so one of yeah. the things you said to me before though was um you mentioned that you'd give people homework and they'd have to come mm. back with these goals yeah have to ask about sex therapy homework. yeah sure so okay <laughs> so this fun. is again this is how we were doing it in relay a few years ago and there's lots of different schools of thought but the, the basic program was using sensate focus exercises i don't know if that's something you've heard of no Tell no. me more. Okay. So, well, so what we'd do, we'd meet the couple, we'd meet them individually, we'd take a full history. So they could say things privately that they might not want their partner to hear mm -hmm. as well. We'd then get together and we'd create a program of homework. So the idea of a sensate focus program is often when people come along, sex has become the enemy. So you give them a holiday from sex. Okay. You say, I'm going to give you a break from sex. You are not having sex, okay? Okay, it sounds less fun now. <laughs> and it's <laughs> neither. It less fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not one of them saying it. 
It's not one of them saying no, it's me saying no. It's the therapist saying no. And you're going to give them a little break and they're going to step back and they're going to gradually start to rebuild in a very gentle, sensual way. So sex is off the cards. They don't need to worry about it. So straight away, the anxiety around that can be put over there because it's not going to happen. Right. So you can have a cuddle and you can have a bit of physical contact without thinking, oh, God, he's going to want sex or she's going to want sex now. So you start people off with individual exercises, self-focus, and that can be as simple as having a bath. You think how often we jump in and out the shower. Yes, and make it as quick as possible. I've got to get clean. Yeah. I've got this to do. I have that to do. Yeah. Scrub, scrub, you know, rub yourself down with a rough old towel <laughs> and off you go. So a sensate focus, ex- a self-focus exercise for an individual might be have a bath and take some time over it. And then when you're, when you've had your bath, you get a nice, soft, fluffy towel. You know, you dry yourself in a mindful way in a thinking about it way, putting you in touch with your body in that way, in a sort of nurturing way. You have to really tailor the program for that individual or couple. So what you might do is you you might suggest they start with a little bit of stroking Mm -hmm. or covered up as they want to be. It could start with something as basic as a hand massage. They give each other a hand massage or they give each other a foot massage starting some kind of touch that isn't threatening that hopefully feels good giving and receiving it's very equal it's very important that both partners do the same thing and it's equal and then you gradually gradually build up from there they go home i have to emphasize all of this happens in the privacy of their own home (laughs) not in the therapy room (laughs) and then they come back and they they tell you how they got on. Yeah. And from that, you discuss what might be a useful next step. If they've had any problems or any difficulties, we talk about that. Um, what got in the way? What might help? It's fascinating because you said about you know the the relationship and this the relationship and the sex side was kind of you know you have the specialties. But listening to you talk about it. It's, it's so much about building the trust again and building. Mm. So it really is more about the idea that they belong together in one sort of therapist. And then here you yeah. talk about it too. I'm like, oh, this is so nice. You're so good at it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously you. you were so good at it, but there must have been something that was still kind of pulling at you that said, yeah. this isn't, you know, yeah. this has been good, but... I mean, yeah, I was I was very happy doing that job, really happy. And then I, I still, it was still there, as you say, this sort of, this part of me that has always wanted to act and had been thwarted. And so I decided to pick it up again for fun. What age was this again? I was in my, I was about 47, 48. So it was for fun at first. And also the children were older by this point. And one of my girls... One of my girls was born with physical, some physical problems, which mm-hmm. meant that she needed a lot more care and a lot more of my time. Thinking about you suffering yeah, with Annie I, when she was small. And-, and and then, you know, obviously her needing quite a lot of extra care, you know, there was no way I could have thought about acting mm-hmm. for all that time. I just couldn't. And then when they were older, they were, you know, not needing so much of me. I plucked up my courage and I went along to my local theatre 
and I auditioned for a local production. And I'm I glad you say plucked up my courage, though, because I do feel like not just because of the courage of actually getting out and acting, but I hate to say it, but it's true. We start to have this invisible age in, a, in mm. the acting world. So, you know, if you think yeah. about 40 or 45, to say I'm going to go back and try something that we know that mm. there's kind of less parts for is a brave move, even if you're just doing it for fun. Yeah. So what was that first yeah. part? Yeah, I was playing gorgeous title bound in the Sisters Rosenzweig. Do you know it? I don't, but I love that name. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd seen the play. It's an American play in um, oh, ages ago with Maureen Littman playing that part. And I'd seen it and I thought, oh, wow. You know, and I've been keeping an eye on the, what the auditions were. And when I saw this one, because I'm Jewish, I just thought, oh, that sounds like fun. It's funny so you she say was- about the American thing too, because we met, if I recall correctly. Yeah. We met because we did a rehearsed reading together. We did. And you ended up playing the American woman. I know. I wasn't allowed to talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. That was so, so ridiculous. Obviously, you not only yeah. have a very good American accent, but you um, are very talented because to beat me out of a role like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think it's just because I was older than you. It worked better that way around. um, I'm not going to be offended. But obviously, like I say, you're clearly very talented. So it went from this kind of first steps into fun and more courses. And then just exactly. And then, you know, it was like, yes, I, I can do this. I can do this. I'm not wrong. I'm not. <laughs> I, I can do this. And then just, I, I felt like I was too old to go back and do full, like to go to drama school and do a full drama training at this age, that life stage. And also it's incredibly expensive. It is incredibly expensive. And not to mention it's time consuming. I've got so much time. I need to get to this quick. I've been dreaming about it for too long. (laughs) Yeah. So that's when I started doing loads and loads of part-time training and just grabbing all this anything that I could like a like a sponge you know just going up madly going on courses and Stanislavski and Meisner and you know just loving it absolutely loving it and then I started thinking oh well maybe I could start applying for some stuff and you know and you start with the low paid and the unpaid don't you the sort of trying to build up some experience and, and just gradually sort of building that up, putting a showreel together, getting an agent, you know, all of all of those steps. People kind of assume that every actor has an agent and it's it's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy. What was kind of the, the things that came together to get you that agent that oh, Well, I'm gonna be completely honest, I knew her already. But that yeah. first agent <laughs> really helped enormously and I was incredibly lucky incredibly lucky to have that first foot on the ladder. Because six years ago, you gave up your day job. So Mm. to do that is also a big deal. Because you're saying this is working. But I was I was going to ask, you know, kind of what some of the challenges have been maybe coming into it later, or just in general, but, Mm. but if you can give up your day job, you're clearly saying to yourself, I was right, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, I think, particularly with something like, I mean, we all know how difficult it is to have the right day job as an actor, you know, something that's flexible, something that you can, you know, you can just drop and somebody will cover for you. You can't do that as a therapist. You can't say to another, oh, I can't see my clients today. Could you see my clients for me? Right. 
or to say to your clients, yeah, I can't make it today. I've got an audition. I mean, you do not do that to clients. You go in, you could be dying and you go in. It's that important that you don't let your clients down. So there was no way I felt that I could really go for it with the acting and and keep the two running. I mean, if any, if I, you know, if anybody else managed to do it, I admire them. But I, I just couldn't see that fitting without compromising. I couldn't have done any of this without having a very supportive husband. That is the missing piece in all of this, and I haven't mentioned him yet. That's true. He just didn't even get a mention. <laughs> you know, sometimes in relationships, there's an element of reparenting that goes on. We try to make up for the perceived shortcomings or whatever, what we didn't get from our parents. And we're, right. sort, of, we're sort of trying to make it better in a way. Well, I think there definitely has been an element of that, you know, because he, he believes in me. There were several shifts health-wise, kids-wise, career-wise. Mm. Was there ever kind of a rough patch that it was just for you personally saying, mm. okay, I don't believe in myself or? Absolutely. So many times, so many times. Like when I'd lost sight of, you know, possibilities or for somebody else to sort of sit down with you and just sort of say, now hang on a minute. <laughs> Have you ever felt like, you know, the, the, the logical voice of reason, you're kind of, shut up, no. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Just listen. You don't have to say anything. Just listen. Don't try and problem solve. It's so true. Just listen it's to like, me. I don't I'm not asking you for a solution. I mm. just need you to need just you let to me listen. Go, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And also the kids. I mean, actually going back to the sex therapy thing, I was the most embarrassing mother. It's just like sex education. It was just it's like Gillian that. Anderson. I wasn't I've oh, I love Gillian Anderson so much. I wasn't as bad as her. But not the real life I was. Anderson, the sex education Gillian Anderson. <laughs> Yeah, but I, yeah, I mean, the books, all my bookshelves of books about sex. And the kids would maybe go in to use this, to use the computer with a friend, and there'd be all these books on the shelves, and they'd be just, you know, really quite embarrassed and alarmed. And, and then, and then their friends didn't know quite, <laughs> quite how to talk to me. Cause yeah, so when, <laughs> when did they kind of understand, like, what you were actually, I mean, not what, what you were actually doing, but I mean, yeah. you know, we all kind of have these visions of what our parents' jobs are. I mean, my dad was what they called then an advertising artist. Now mm. he probably say graphic designer. But, you know, I'd go to his office and there'd be markers and I would color and I'd say, this is the coolest job ever. Yeah. yeah. So when did your kids, you yeah. know, kind of... I mean, they were old enough when I started, when I switched over into the sex therapy, they were old enough to sort of grasp. The, the sort of basic idea of it. But they didn't really want to know very much. They really didn't. Yeah. And if I tried to talk to them, I mean, like, I obviously tried really hard to have, you know, sensible sex conversations with my children. They did not want to have those conversations. I was going to say, like, me. how do you, how does, how do you know they didn't conversation want to... when your parents are Because I'm thinking, well, obviously, I'm, I'm clearly the best person to have, these, to have these talks with them. They didn't want them with me. No. I remember, or I'd, I'd get them when they were in the car, I'd be driving them somewhere. And I'd think, this is a good time. This is a good time, you know. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd sort of think, yeah, when they were trapped. And I'd sort of think, well, this would be a good time to talk about the concept of consent. 
And they'd be just like shrinking down in their chairs. Just, all right, mum, all right. So you really are like from such education. an embarrassing mother. Was there anything that, I mean, you said that they, they had their friends over and they were like, I don't know. I don't know what I have in my head. I guess I am so now in the sex education. I, I'm thinking show. about one of my son's friends. So, so first of all, I was the embarrassing one and it wasn't to be mentioned. As they got older, Actually, I do remember a particular, and I won't go into detail, obviously, but one of my son's friends was having a specific issue at home that involved um, his parents finding something of his. Okay. And and through my son, sort of talking, asking advice on what to do about that. A literal asking problem. for a friend. <laughs> yeah, literally asking for a friend. Yeah, so maybe... Maybe Jack's mum might know what to do. <laughs> We've talked about the tribulations to get there, but what have been some of the acting triumphs? What's kind of mm. your favorite? What have you gotten to do that's your favorite thing? Do you know what, Kristen? I feel like every single thing that happens is a triumph. You know when people say to you, um, you know, acting like, like friends, oh, you know, what will I have seen you in? Do you get that? I, what will I've seen you the in? The best answer I've heard for that is, do you watch porn? <laughs> I love it. I love it. But it'll be like, be clear, oh, well, it um... depends. You know, how much, how much, how many times do you go to pub theatres in London, you know, yeah. to watch theatre? Because you will have seen me there. You'll have seen me having a wonderful time in fringe theatre. And there is some I, glorious things happening in I those pub theatres. I love it. There's a lot mm. going on that people, I think, yeah. that aren't sort of familiar with that scene don't know about. And I think, you know, triumphs, okay. You know what it's like when you get a part that you want, that feeling. No. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes, you do. I know you do. Yes. But you know when you've, you know, you've done an audition and you go home and you think, yeah, you know, I, I, you believe that you've done a good job. And actually, that in itself, whether you get the job or not. Yeah, you mentioned a Brian Cranston quote. I can't remember the exact quote, but he's, it's, it's quoted a lot. Try to think of each audition almost like a job in itself. And it's for you. It's something for you. It's a chance for you to act. And you go in and you prepare. You do, obviously, you prepare as well as you possibly can. You go in and you do it. And then you, and then you walk away easier sometimes than others isn't it so. <laughs> yeah there's the day but it's trying to sort of what are they thinking of me now yeah. because I really feel like an idiot <laughs> there's other days that you walk away yeah. and go yeah you don't yeah. always get it but you exactly. do have that feeling but of you, like I you, did the job it, exactly and you know that it's also I think with more experience increasing experience it's knowing that even if you did your best and you did a good job there's so much that's outside of your control yeah, I remember the feeling I got. I did this really lovely show with a lovely director called Luke Adamson, and he wrote it as well. And he did, we did the show called he did the show called One Last Waltz, and I really wanted that part because it was very close to my heart. Mm -hmm. It was about being a daughter and mother with with dementia, which was at that point who I was. And I remember getting that, and that feeling like the best feeling in the world. Yeah, because everybody does kind of think that the best roles are ones where you can play someone who's so different from you. But mm -hmm. often the roles that are kind of the most meaningful are the ones that you can really look at and say, this is me and I can give a part of the real me. Yeah. 
And telling a story like that, that is so important, so relevant to so many people's lives, that doing that, that means a lot to me. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Acting is so good, isn't it? When you actually yeah. get to do it and you get to work on good things and yeah, good being people. able to tell good stories. Okay, so what about directing though? I've directed a couple of times, yeah. Again, I got the chance to do that at my local theatre. I was very grateful to them for letting me have a go. I directed Bad Jews. And that was your first directing experience. Yeah, that was a scream. That was an absolute (laughs) scream. I loved it so much. As an actor, did you struggle at all with like, oh, I would want to do it this way or, oh, I wish I was doing that? Or did you just love directing and getting to work with people and... I really, really loved directing. I think also because all my cast was young and I think, you know, I couldn't have played those parts in a million years that they were playing. So in a way, it was even easier to take a a step away and just, I really enjoyed it. Also, if anyone hears, is hearing and loving your voice, you said you've been working on some voice over to expand that role as well. Yeah. So I did some voiceovers in the past, but that was, that was before, obviously before lockdown. So, I mean, I um, I basically set up a, a home studio and... Fantastic. So, ready to um, start producing from home. Fabulous. In my room. I've created this home studio. It sounds so grand, doesn't it? It's my son's old bedroom. So, I've been soundproofing it and I've put in the window to help block the sound. I've got this massive block of foam cut to size, which cuts all the light out from the room as well. Every home studio sort of voiceover person is sitting in a hot, dark... <laughs> I love it because you see everybody. I mean, mine's... Well, sitting in a in a tiny cupboard somewhere with a, with a yeah. duvet over your head. So that I know. Sound- <laughs> I'm very lucky I don't have to do that. But so I sent a photograph of the room to my daughter to say, this is, look at what I'm doing in the room. She said, mum, people are going to think you're dealing crack. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, you're you're very versatile. Maybe this is your next career. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So the one thing, though, that you said, because you you seem like, you know, you really are in the right place when it comes to acting and everything. Some directing voiceover. But the one thing you did say was a bit about feeling like you're not doing something as useful maybe Mm. anymore. How do you kind of of come to terms with that? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because for a lot of my working life, I was doing, I was helping. I had helping jobs. I do think I've struggled with that. I don't think acting is a completely selfish thing to do. I think it's a wonderful, valuable contribution to creating art and and stories that people can connect to. Yeah, like and you I think said that's about it. the dementia story, that yeah. something so many yeah. people need to see that story because they're either living it or mm. should know more about it. But also entertaining people. Yeah. You look at what's kept us going through, you know, through lockdown. It's, it's been true. all this amazing online stuff. People have been watching television for hours and hours and hours. But particularly when, as we all know, acting isn't a full-time job. So you've got more time on your hands. And I think not having a focus can be quite difficult. So it's finding that focus for all of us, you know, some structure and some focus when you don't know when you're going to get your next acting job. And so, um, yeah, I've started volunteering at my local food bank I think we were doing that right before we were chatting today. I felt like I've been sitting around drinking coffee. (laughs) (laughs) You are a really busy woman. You're a busy woman. I know how busy you are. Yeah, so I started doing that. I mean, it's it's a small thing. It's a small 
contribution. But it's, again, it's that feeling of being part of, maybe being part of a team that are working together to do something worthwhile. And you don't always get that with acting because even though you're on a team, they're short-lived most of the time. And then you kind of mm. lose this mini family you had you for do. a while. That's the sad thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to walk out of a rehearsal room and or off the stage and say, let's stay in yeah. touch on social media. <laughs> it sounds like you found such a good balance between, you know, having these changes throughout your life where you've gotten to balance what you've dreamed of with being a mother, with helping people. I'm just impressed. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. That's very kind of you. <laughs> I think, that, you know, I don't think it's easy to do. When you feel like you have to give up on your dreams, you did have a dream that just couldn't happen at the time, mm. but it's nice to see that yeah. they don't have to be stopped forever. And it's also, I think it's something about not measuring your success against others is quite important. Our triumphs are all going to be different. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I feel like if people listen to multiple episodes, which they hopefully will of the second chapter, one of, thing, one of the things I'm always saying or going on about for myself is just wanted to be a Renaissance woman, I guess. I hope that when I look back on my life, it's one of those things that it's like, wow, I, or, you know, she really did mm so many things and got to experience yeah. so many things. And if, even if I'm not a raging success at all of them, it'll be nice to know that, you know, the experience was well lived. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad through this that I'm getting to talk to so many other people that have done some really amazing things. Mm. So I will say thank you so much, Julie, for joining well, me. And it's been lovely. It's been lovely chatting. Yeah, it's really good. I hope we get to see each other again in person soon. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.